in my people, the Zishat people from Vancouver Island, a lot, uh, we share uh, the world view of many indigenous peoples in that everything is giving its life to you. That plant is giving its life to you. Those leaves that you make in medicine are giving their lives to you so that you can utilize them and take them for sustenance. I'm your host, Dee Dee Madigan, and you're listening to another episode of Home Plates. This weekend at the UW campus, the Indigenous Food Symposium is occurring on Friday and Saturday. If you're a UW student and interested in attending, this is a free event. The event includes traditional food lunches both days. This is a symposium all about Indigenous food and ecological knowledge. In the studio this week is Dr. Charlotte Cote to talk more about the symposium, as she is the one who started it. Dr. Cote is a professor at the UW in the American Indian Studies program, and I highly recommend checking out some of the courses in that department and also the courses that she teaches. Keep listening as Dr. Cote talks more about Indigenous food sovereignty, what exactly that is, and what the symposium is going to be about. And of course, be sure to check out the symposium, which is happening right here on campus. Both days go from 8.45 a.m. to 5 p.m. Don't forget to subscribe. New episodes are out every Wednesday. We are on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and TuneIn. Keep listening. This is another episode of Home Plates. Welcome to another episode of Home Plates. Today with me, I'm very excited to have uh, a guest who is also my professor. She is a professor with the American Indian Studies Department at the University of Washington. Would you like to tell us a little bit about yourself and your background and everything you do at the UW? Okay, well, my name is Charlotte Cote. I teach in the American Indian Studies. I've been teaching there since 2001. I am First Nations from Canada, born and raised in my native community on Vancouver Island, and uh, moved to the United States in 1994 to conduct research at uh, the um, University of California, Berkeley, where I finished a master's and PhD, and have since moved here in 2001. Really started doing, focusing my research on food uh, indigenous foods and the revitalization of our foodways after I completed my last book. My book was published in 2010. It was a book about the revitalization of tradition, focusing on macaw and new channel whaling. And uh, one of the main reasons I wrote that book was because I wanted people to understand the cultural, social, economic, dietary importance of putting whale meat back on our tables and a lot of people who were opposed to us revitalizing these hunts didn't understand the significance of our foods, of eating our traditional foods. Whale, meat, oil, blubber were the main components of our diet in our pre-contact cultures and it wasn't until the commercial whaling industry decimated our whale populations to near extinction that we were severed from that very healthy food source. And so my final chapter in that book focused on the dietary significance, the sacred significance of eating our foods, the social connections we make when eating our our traditional foods. And so it really got me thinking about why we eat certain foods. What happens when we can't? What happens as indigenous peoples because of colonialism that we were severed from these very healthy diets? What has it done to our communities, not just with respect to our health and wellness, but um, with respect to community? You know, that we're not coming together to harvest, to process, to share these foods. And so it really got me thinking about the revitalization of indigenous foodways and how that fits into notions of sovereignty. 
And so when I started really thinking about sovereignty, I looked at the growing scholarship that's been taking place globally around food sovereignty. And this definition itself really was, um, it came out of many conversations that various and very diverse communities throughout the world were having about food insecurity. Why are we producing enough food in this world to feed our populations twice over, yet we still have people starving. So a lot of the conversations were focused on the production of food, and there was a small group of farmers, peasant farmers, indigenous peoples that came together under the name Via Campesina, who questioned not just the production of food, but who, con who controls that production? Who controls the globalization and the commodification of foods? And how did that control, that power to control and produce certain kinds of foods, limit what was happening in our communities so that we, indigenous peoples, were becoming insecure with respect to our foods? And so at various meetings, they began de developing a new definition around how to think through global hunger. And in, 1990, in 1996, they developed the term food sovereignty. And food sovereignty focuses on rights, the rights of people to produce, consume, harvest, share their foods. So it moves away from um, looking at the amounts of foods being processed to having the right to access places that were where you traditionally harvest foods, to be able to harvest those foods, produce those foods, and eat the foods that you want to eat. And so many indigenous peoples throughout the world in the last probably 20, 30 years, we've been going through these processes of decolonization, cultural revitalization, as a movement away from colonization, as a movement to revitalize and strengthen our cultures and our cultural traditions. And one area we've been focusing on is our foods. And so we took this concept of food sovereignty and indigenized it. And indigenizing the concept moves it away from a rights-based discourse into a responsibilities-based discourse. Yes, we have the right and should have the right to harvest our foods, to produce our foods, to eat our foods, but it's also our responsibility to the relationship to the things that provide themselves to us as food that we need to think about. So indigenous food sovereignty is focused on relationships, responsibilities to the natural world, to what provides you with food, the plants, the animals, the waters, the lands, and really honoring those relationships in a very respectful way. Can you tie indigenous food sovereignty to colonization? We talked a little bit about this in the Palestinian episode mm -hmm. of how colonization and food sovereignty are very, they're, they're related to each other in that it's an act of colonization. But could you go over that again and maybe explain specifically more about that? One of the main areas that we really, where we really saw change in our communities through colonization and the continual uh, colonialism within our communities, within our societies, was first removal from our lands removing us from those lands that provided us sustenance, placing us on reservations and in Canada on reserves so that we couldn't access those traditional places where we harvested foods or where we harvested medicines. So some of that, because of the colonization and the process of colonization, federal policy, uh, we were removed from those homelands. Also in part of that process was federal policy that removed us from our communities. Our children were taken from our communities, placed in boarding schools, so that they didn't have access to family, to language, to teachings, but they also didn't have access to those foods. They weren't fed traditional foods in these boarding schools. They were fed very unhealthy diets of foods 
that were laden with salt, sugar, and fat, what were called commodity foods that were still that were also provided to reservation communities because we were making them into these desert zones, places where they couldn't live sustainably because colonization so negatively impacted their societies and their abilities to take care of themselves, that they left them like these arid deserts. So because of that, many people understood that that process was removing them from what kept them healthy all those years, that they were becoming very unhealthy. And it really worked along with what was happening in the larger society anyway. As larger global nations, we are very unhealthy. Western nations, very, very unhealthy. But even more so in those communities where you were more vulnerable because of colonization, where you didn't have access to not only um, economies that sustained your communities, but your, your socioeconomic conditions were below what we saw in larger societies, so you become more vulnerable. So rates of disease in our communities, even though we see, in the, see them increase in the larger society, they're increasing at more dramatic levels in indigenous communities because of that vulnerability. So we are indigenous peoples two or three times more likely to get cardiovascular disease, to get diabetes, to get autoimmune diseases, to get diseases like cancer, because we're a more vulnerable society because of that impact of colonization. So we really started looking at how is it still being perpetuated in our communities today? Yeah, we had boarding schools up into the 1970s and those were phased out, but why are we still seeing these health issues in our communities today. Why is disease still escalating? Because we're still feeling the contemporary effects of colonialism. You know, we don't have our lands back. Many of the foods we subsisted on are threatened, and a lot of the threats coming from changes in the world. Global climate change is impacting larger society, but impacting us in very direct and significant levels. Salmon, who the coastal peoples rely on today, one of their main subsistence foods, are being threatened because of ocean acidification, because of the warming of the, of the waters here in, in the Pacific Northwest. And so those kinds of issues really make us think through how can we change that? Not just saying we have the right to change it, which is what food sovereignty is, but that we have a responsibility to change it. We have a responsibility to create or re-engage in our homelands in a more respectful way to understand, yes, colonialism is still alive and well, but we can make significant changes in our dietary health. For example, if we don't have access to traditional harvesting sites, but we're still trying to um, revitalize healthy communities, then we can start community gardens. Many of the commu uh, indigenous communities in the United States and Canada have started garden projects with people, especially the youth in their communities. We never ate kale in my community. That's not a traditional food, but in our community garden that my sister created in my community back home, they grow kale, they go, grow squash, they grow tomatoes. And it's teaching people how to be healthy again, not so much in re-engaging with our traditional foods, which is also there because we are still hunting, we're still fishing, we're still trying to access our traditional foods as much as we can. But understand it, we have to find other ways to revitalize healthy nations. And so the community gardens are a significant part of that in just recreating health and wellness in our people, in our communities, as a way to become not just self-determining nations as we move towards sovereignty, but healthy and sustainable. So it sounds like it's sort of like a two parts in that there's like the cultural aspect to it and then sort of the more physical, tangible aspect to what you're talking about. Yeah. So in one way, it's very important keeping the traditions, but also just making sure people are physically well that our community is like healthy. And I think, I don't know, it's something that we take for granted more. 
Okay, let's make a transition into the relationship between indigenous peoples and the land, because I think that's key to understand this responsibility you're talking about, mm-hmm. and then how it's related to indigenous food sovereignty. Here in the Pacific Northwest and the Northwest Coast, we have our relationship, it moves beyond just land. Home, when we think of homelands, we think of water. Water really it was the substance to our societies because we're marine-based cultures. And so to have or to re, reignite that engagement with our waters means really thinking through what's happening with global climate change, what's happening with ocean acidification. How do you revitalize your cultures and traditions as you move forward in trying to strengthen and, and create vibrant, healthy communities when your homelands are at risk? So that's really a question that we continually have to deal with as we're reestablishing those healthy relationships with our land, with the plants, with the animals, um, and doing so in a respectful way. And it's not that we at some point stop disrespecting the land or stop disrespecting the water, but a lot of our attention was spent on just trying to survive, you know, just trying to put food on the table regardless. We weren't thinking what kind of food because all we're thinking about is we have to try not to starve. And so it's been recent years where we're really understanding health goes beyond just dietary. It is emotional health, it's spiritual health, it's um, community health, that we all come together in the sharing of those foods so that we not only reconnect with each other in the sharing of those foods, but at a very, at a larger and more emotional and intimate way, we're connecting ourselves back to those homelands when we eat those foods. We're connecting back to those waters when we're eating that salmon or sharing that salmon. So it is a major and significant part of the decolonization process through this kind of decolonial praxis that we're, that we're creating as we re-engage, as we revitalize those very important and sacred relationships we have to our waterscape, to our marine spaces, and to our landscapes. So it really is um, understanding that what is provided to you is something that's coming from the sacred, that there's a sacred space there, that there's a a sacred relationship that we have to continually honor and make that a significant part of this movement towards self-determination, that we honor those relationships that have been severed, that federal policy, that boarding schools, um, removing us from uh, from our cultural knowledge, from our ecological knowledge has really um, created voids in the way that we've related to the things around us that we really need to reignite again and to spark and to and to strengthen. And we're really seeing that in communities, especially in the indigenous communities, but in the rural communities as well. Over 50% of our of our indigenous peoples live outside of their reservation and reserve communities, but they're still part of that moving towards self-determination by thinking through how do you re-engage with the land? How do you re-engage with the land when you're living in the middle of Seattle? Well, you respect it and you honor it and you find ways to engage in those spaces even if you're outside of the uh, traditional territory and where you were born and raised and where your community is situated, you find ways to engage with the land that you are presently on. So it becomes a real um, significant aspect of decolonization in that it's centered in this uh, movement to become healthy, to create this uh, movement around health and wellness. Then I was wondering if you could talk about growing up in your own food culture well, I think I grew up, I, I feel I was very privileged in how I was raised because I was raised at a time where we still were accessing our foods. We had already been placed on a reserve. Uh, many of the harvesting sites, our traditional harv- harvesting sites were removed because of colonization. 
But my, I grew up in a family that really made it a priority to eat our traditional foods. I was raised with salmon, which is very hard not to. We have a river that runs right behind our community, right behind my house. So we were raised with salmon, which is one of our traditional foods. My um, dad hunted every year, so we also had deer and moose and elk in our diet throughout my lifetime. And my gr I grew up right next door to my grandparents, and my grandfather was one of these believers in eating and sharing our traditional food. So he wouldn't go out. Well, he, he was a salmon fisher, but he would go down to the docks on the weekends and see what foods were being brought in by local fishermen. And he would buy some of the foods, the sea urchins, the crab, maybe halibut or cod that they brought in. And he would cook it up and put it in the middle of the table and bring all the grandchildren and say, it's yours. And so it was just a really wonderful way of staying connected to those foods, but also staying t connected to family. Because it wasn't that you're eating in isolation. You were always bringing people together to share those foods, to tell stories around those foods. And so I think that I was very fortunate that I was able to um, I was able to experience that, and I still experience that. I still go home every year, every summer, when the salmon are running up our river, and I fish with my sister, and uh, I process the fish with my aunt, and uh, smoke the smoke salmon and jar salmon um, with my relatives. And so it's all about coming together and bonding around those foods, even today. And I, if I can do that as a professor here at the university, that I can make my way home so that I can, you know, participate in traditional food production, I think anyone can if you're really bound and determined to do it. I miss berry picking because I'm usually teaching when berry picking season is happening. <laughs> and that was something that I was raised in. Families getting together, big groups of us piling into vehicles and heading up in the mountains to harvest wild blackberries and it's one of the traditions that I miss today because I usually cannot get there in time because I'm teaching and I usually teach a summer class and so I kind of miss it but I enjoy my family who still go <laughs> and participate in that because they always share their blackberries with me. <laughs> Maybe you'll have to take a field trip, whole class field trip. Yeah. <laughs> Do you have a favorite salmon dish then, a way that you prepare your salmon? My favorite way is the most basic way, which is a traditional way of cooking it. You cook it on an open pit fire. You cut open the salmon like a filet and you put these sticks through it. You wet these sticks and you put the sticks through it and you put it on this large stick, like a large spike that goes behind the salmon, which is open. So it's like a, this big filet, one piece of salmon and you cook it over an open pit fire. And all that you get, you don't put anything on it, you don't put spices on it. It's just the smoke from that alder wood that's burning that gives it the most amazing taste. And that still is my favorite way of eating salmon. Plus one of my favorite dishes is fish head soup. <laughs> it took me a long time to get used to eating fish heads. My grandpa loved them. So he was always trying to get us to eat them. And then finally, I think it was when I was maybe 11 or 12, I thought, okay, I'm going to try this. And I loved it. And to this day, that's one of my favorite meals, fish head soup. Uh, do, you, do you cook at all then? Is cooking something that's important to you? Or yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, I w again, I was probably raised at a time period where people still cooked where I still love to cook my own foods, and bringing foods here, going home, processing these foods, and then bringing them back here so I can, you know, stay connected to my culture. I have a lot of salmon in my cupboard just for, and in my fridge and freezer that I processed last summer. So when I'm eating those foods, I'm still feeling like I'm connected, that I'm there, even though I'm not. I'm here in Seattle. Um, so salmon especially, because salmon is the heart and soul of our, our marine cultures here in the northwest coast. And so I eat a lot of salmon, a lot. And it's just, I mean, you find various ways of cooking it. 
you know and I, but I I love cooking very simply I'm not somebody who puts a lot of spices on food although I I do love salt but just basic dishes fish and rice dishes you know maybe uh, mixing a little bit of curry into a soup and having um, fish soup with um, you know potatoes and carrots but very basic dishes same with berries you know I just love to just eat berries on their own you know at the at the end of a meal or just as a snack and that's just how we were raised with those kinds of foods to have them you know to eat them that way to have them as very simple simple but very tasty dishes yeah 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 I've had other guests talk about how they just like there are certain things they just they don't do they don't add you know spices or whatever and you don't need salt or pepper just eat it for how it is and I think that's really interesting because mm-hmm. a lot of other cuisines I mean especially in America we just like throw everything. like everything on it mm-hmm. at least like more sugar more salt more whatever yeah. so yeah, uh, yeah there we have on in the summertime when the fish are running we have what's called communal fish day so you can go out individually or with family and go go fishing if you have your own boat if you have your own net but a lot of people don't they can't afford to have their own boat or net so every sunday we have what's called a communal fish day where we can go go to this area within my community um, where there used to it used to be a dam and it's an area where the salmon pool before they head up to the river to spawn and so when we go there we have a communal seine net, and all the fish that is captured throughout that morning, we fish from 6 in the morning till noon, um, it's divided among the people who are there. And we all go out and pull that net in. It's all a community effort, and all the fish are then divided, and you take that the fish home and you harvest it and process it however you want to. But what we usually do at the first... and I haven't been able to go home a lot for communal fish days, but one thing that I love and remember as a young girl that was one of my favorite times of going to communal fish day, the elders would take the first salmon that we would get, and they would do songs and and ceremony around that salmon. The salmon is giving itself to us. The spirit of that salmon is giving itself to us, so we should honor that. We should pray to those salmon, respect that they're giving us those physical forms to feed us pray to those spirits that they go back to their salmon world and let the other salmon know that they've been treated in this very respectful way so the elders would be in the water doing these ceremonies and then they would take the fish in and cook the fish and we would eat it right there right on the beach we never had paper plates back in the day we would take leaves from the trees usually maple leaves because they're very big leaves and the the elders would have us line up and we would go in with our leaf and they would put the salmon on the leaf and share that with you some of the elders would make bread so that they would bring that bread or what is called bannock it's like bread that you cook in the in the oven it's just a very kind of a flat bread but a very very tasty bread some would throw some of the eggs and uh, the heads and tails into a pot and make a make a broth. And if you had um, a mug or something, you can put it in. You would just dip it in and take a little bit of that broth. But it was such a wonderful way to just come together and share, share that first salmon. So that salmon, it's sharing itself with you, but those elders were all overseeing the sharing of that food with all of us and it's really one of my favorite memories it's something I'm writing about in this book that I'm working on on revitalizing indigenous foodways and the importance of that as we really strive to become healthy nations as we move towards self-determination that will be um, sustainable self-determining nations that's one of my main stories in this book it's one of my fondest memories of seeing those elders, you know, really overseeing, taking care of us, taking care of us by sharing that ecological and food knowledge with us. Yeah, it definitely makes me reflect on how disconnected, when we talked about it too, how disconnected most of us are from food. It's just, we, I feel like we just keep getting more and more removed. We go buy prepackaged food 
or we do Uber Eats or whatever and really don't it's it's not a time to be like sit down or like be with people or like you know have it be special it's just something that you have to do I feel like it's just like you know in different cultures all of them if you like look back it's like food is very important you know because it's so much part of culture it's mm-hmm. a time for people to come together and it helps define culture too and how you do that and so it's it's definitely something interesting and hopefully like our listeners will reflect on that too because mm-hmm. it's um something we don't do often but it's yeah. you know. it is it's really something we moved away from in in the larger society and i see it in my communities too because uh, in our indigenous communities because you're so busy you know and there's other things that are engaging our youth you know you can sit in a room where everyone has their face down in their phone checking social media you know rarely do people get together to share a meal to just come together to share a, mo- a meal part of um, a committee here on campus for the last six years and it's uh, a committee that I started with a, uh, an event that I founded um, six years ago called the living breath of Wethlebald, uh, the indigenous foods and ecological knowledge symposium and it came out of just extra money that we had in our department one year six years ago and my chair of my department knew that this was a research I was doing on on indigenous food systems and practices and he said do you want to host an event coordinate an event here and I said sure you know I'll reach out to people see if I I can you know who I can bring in and see what we can do it became such a signature event everyone was so excited about this potential of what this kind of event could do that I said okay I need to keep going with this so I formed a committee, I brought together a planning committee, there's six of us in this committee, and we come together to, and every year I have coordinated this event as a way to create a dialogue around indigenous foods and indigenous food ways. To create a dialogue, not with just people in academe, but to connect us, people in academe, with people who are doing the work in the communities. So create a dialogue of diverse voices coming together to share knowledge um, and um, most most of the people who attend are people from indigenous communities or are tied to indigenous communities some way work within these communities or work for these communities or are members of those communities and we've usually draw around 200 people which is a really nice size considering it just started out as a, a small event and uh, we make sure that it is a green event so that we're very ecologically conscious. It is an event held here on campus. We're holding our next food symposium May 4th and 5th. It is in our new Longhouse building, a building that I was a part of creating as well. I served on the chair of that committee to oversee the, the creation of that building. So. The living breath of Wethlebalt really means what we want to express in that new space here on campus, in that longhouse. The breath, the stories, the life that comes into that space as we come together in dialogue. So the living breath of Wethlebalt, Indigenous Foods and Ecological Knowledge Symposium creates a space for us to come together and talk about our foods. And we welcome everyone to come. It's not just about bringing together Indigenous peoples. Anyone who wants to share or understand or learn or um, think through food and its relationship to community, to society, to culture. And uh, we also provide two meals and our meals are meals that um, come out of these communities. Most of the foods that we that we share at this event is foods donated by local tribal communities. So we've had salmon donated, elk, elk meat, deer meat, and then we prepare it and we share it with everyone who, who comes and participates. It's free for UW students. Uh, all we ask is that you register. The registration is free, but that you register so we can get a head count of how many people are there so we'll know how, many, how much to cook. But it's really a wonderful event. We had people last year 
from uh, Kivalina, Alaska, a little community of 400 people of Native Alaskans, and they sent four of their youth, people from, in the, from their late teens into their early 20s, who came to talk to us about their traditional foods and wanted to share that with us and to hear about the traditional foods that other people were um, uh, discussing at our symposium. We had um, people from Arizona who were talking about corn production, corn, beans, and squash, and, and production and the importance to the uh, Southwest Indigenous communities. We've had many people from the First Nations communities in Canada. Many people from my community have come and to share stories about you know, our salmon and about our traditional food. So it's been a really wonderful event that we've seen grow in a very positive way. And we're really excited for the one that's coming up in May. Yeah, I was hoping uh, we could talk about indigenous food in the mainstream. So a lot of, there's always a lot of uh, constant conversation, I feel like, of different cultures' foods, like tr trending or like, being discovered or um, I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. When I think about what has happened to some communities and where they've been displaced um, through food production that focuses on foods that they um, subsisted on, I think of quinoa. Quinoa became a kind of this shishi food the last, what, 10 years. Um, the people who lived on quinoa, could live on it. It's a very healthy food, a very healthy food source. And so people who in South America, the indigenous peoples who were harvesting it, could harvest it for themselves. But because it became a food that they were then producing to export out, out of their country, it became a food that was inaccessible because all the production of quinoa ended up going to the export market. So people who relied on quinoa as a staple food were being, were being severed from that traditional and healthy food because of market demands and demands of, uh, of the more wealthy nations in importing in quinoa because there was, it, it became kind of this trendy food. So when I think about uh, how those kinds of trends can impact indigenous communities, that's the one example that comes to mind. Not so much foods that are trending, um, but dietary uh, and nutritional supplements. One supplement that has gained a lot of interest is krill. You can buy, you can get krill oil tablets, and because they're very healthy, well sea mammal oil as well is very healthy, but krill oil, um, and krill are these little, little species of a they're well they, they are what whales yeah. eat that that yeah. are on the bottom on the bottom of the oceans mm -hmm. and so they lift up the up the sand from the bottom of the oceans and these little krill um, are exposed and then they filter them through their baleen and eat them well krill has become one of those trendy nutritional supplements we're taking the food away from whales, yet we, we criticize communities, people who survive on whales. The, there was a, a large anti-whaling campaign that cre was created in the 1990s against the Macaw whale hunt, the Macaw tribe's whale hunt. Um, many people saying that the Macaw had no right to whale, that whales were being threatened, that the population of whale, of the gray whale, um, couldn't sustain uh, a traditional uh, whale hunt, which was absolutely false. That population of gray whales abundant uh, or, or rebounded to a very healthy and sustainable population. In fact, studies that were being conducted said it would probably even do good to pull some of those whales out of that population so you could see a sustainable growth because there were so many whales, that population had grown so dramatically and um, strengthened to such a st this very healthy population of whales thanks to these restrictions 
placed on um, commercial whaling through the International Whaling Com the Global International Whaling Commission, that they reached their carrying capacity for their feeding grounds. There wasn't enough food to feed them. We've seen throughout the years whales beaching themselves, whales that are undernourished beaching themselves. Critics who don't want to admit there's too many whales or that we're, as a larger society, creating these kinds of situations that are, are, are allowing these whales to, to suffer, say they point to global climate change, to the change in the water temperatures, um, to toxins in the water. Yes, those are all factors, but they're also factors that there's just not enough food to feed them. And now we're having, you know, this new trending nutri nutritional supplement, krill oil, that's taking what limited foods the whales already have. So if we're surviving, and many people in northern Canada, as well as um, northern Alaska, in the native Alaskan communities, still subsist on whales, if they're subsisting on these whales and those whales are threatened because of that trend in krill oil, then you're threatening that those populations, those communities of indigenous peoples, because you're not, uh, you're not establishing preventative measures or at least um, limiting the kinds of nutritional supplements or looking at nutritional supplements and what they're doing to populations of animals, to these species, and also what they're doing to populations of of people as well. Yeah, definitely going back to the, the whaling thing, it was interesting to talk about that in class just because I remember discussing it in middle school, killing animals is bad, you know, mm -hmm. that's what you learn. But, you know, in class we read a piece and it was just like there are fundamental different views on how we view animals and land. Mm -hmm. And it's just um, from a Western perspective, it's very much like everything is ours. It's ours to manage. Mm -hmm. It's for us. And so that leads to this perspective of, oh, we need to protect the animals as if the animals need protecting. Mm -hmm. And so that fundamental different perspective is like really what people miss I think mm -hmm. and so it's, it was really interesting to learn about how like no it's like you know it's there's like traditions and like history and culture behind this that is often mm -hmm. overlooked so yeah it was, it's, it was good to talk about then yeah I mean we forget that we that we're part of the ecosystem we pull ourselves out as the protectors mm. of that ecosystem without understanding the symbiotic relationship of everything that exists in that ecosystem along with us, that we're a part of it. That doesn't make us uh, serve in any kind of hierarchical role, but we exist alongside the plants and the animals and the land in that relationship based on respect and reciprocity. And I think we forget that even people who are involved in these green movements or animal rights movements forget that, that you can honor an animal, you can honor the spirit of something that's giving itself to you by taking it as a food source. It doesn't mean that there's, um, it's not an antagonistic relationship you're having with that animal that's giving itself to you. It's a one based on reciprocity. You're honoring it by taking care of it, taking care of the homelands that it's, it exists on so that when it does give itself to you as a food source, you appreciate it that much more. And so many people who do, and, and I, you know, I, believe, I think of myself as an animal rights activist. I support um, protecting animals. I support protecting um, creating awareness around what we're doing, especially in the global food production. I think if you are eating foods that you get from stores, you cannot point the finger at indigenous peoples in their traditional hunting uh, practices because what we do to animals to be put on your food, on your table, is wrong. It is wrong what is happening with the commodification and globalization of food as, it, as it, this global, larger global industry. Um, if you saw what, it ha what goes in, what happens to these animals before they become your meal, 
um, it's really, really sad. That we don't see when we're we still exist alongside animals in that res in that respectful relationship, and. I say this to students when I talk about this in relationship to food or if if your whole point is that you are against eating animals because you're killing something. Well, when you take a plant, you're killing it. It's the same way you're taking its life. When you pull that carrot out of the ground, you're taking its life. Every in my world in our in my people, the Tsishot people from Vancouver Island, we share the world view of many indigenous peoples in that everything is giving its life to you. That plant is giving its life to you. Those leaves that you make in medicine are giving their lives to you so that you can utilize them and take them for sustenance. So you honor those plants, you honor those animals, you honor the trees that are giving you the bark that you're then going to make into something. And if you think of the relationship that you have to what becomes your food in that way, it'll make you think about it very differently the next time you have a meal. You know, that you're not just looking at something that is that never ever had a life. And a lot of people see it that way because they just open up a package, you know, and put something in the oven and pull it out and there it is, it's food. You know, I've seen, I've, I've witnessed going out and getting salmon and watching that salmon as it's giving itself to me and really respecting the fact that that's going to be my meal or that's going to be a meal that I'm going to be sharing with my family or my relatives. So you really look at um, food and the production of food in a very different way when you have those intimate connections to what gives itself to you as a food source. You've already talked about um, a few of these, but I always like to end with my guests' favorite food memory. So just a memory of food doesn't have to be the food that we talked about, but just any type of food uh, memory that just makes you really, really happy to think about. You already mentioned one about mm -hmm. the community fishing, but uh, if you have any others that you mm -hmm. can think of. Well, I'll share one, and it's one that I share in this book that I'm working on, my Revitalization of Indigenous Foodways book. I talk about the food, the social community experience of sharing food, of harvesting food, gathering food, and um, I, I talk about it with respect to that it's more than just, you know, we're, we don't want to um, stay connected to food just because uh, the food is good, because they're, they're, our traditional foods are very good for you and very healthy. There's other aspects. There's these communal aspects to the, to the food, to the harvesting, to the production, to the uh, sharing of these foods. And I grew up in a berry picking tradition and a family that loved to get together to berry pick. And I always say, you know, my, our parents were more than happy to give us to my uncle or my grandparents, whoever was bringing us up into the mountains to harvest blackberries, because they didn't have us for the day. You know, we were gone. And for us, it was great because as kids, you know, we'd go, we'd get ready, we'd, have, we'd pack our, our food or our grandparents would pack the food for the day, we'd have our buckets that we were going to be picking in. And nobody, everybody understood that we, we knew the landscape. No one was there overseeing us. We could run up to the top of the mountains. We, we could do whatever we wanted as long as we came back with berries. And so I had have wonderful memories of that. But as I grew older, one of the people who I used to berry pick with a lot was one of my aunts, my Auntie Eileen, and her nickname is Misspun. My auntie passed away a few years ago from cancer. She was seven years older than me. So we were in, in my community that's very close in age. She was like my older sister. And uh, so we would go out fit, fit picking berries, and she'd always... You know, I was going, you know, the last 20 years of my life, I've been involved in academe. Um, well, since 1994, when I started graduate school, I moved away from my community. So every time I go home, she'd say, we're going berry picking. She'd want us to go berry picking. 
Um, and a lot of it was we'd go berry picking as we're driving up the mountains. We'd be telling stories or she'd be, in, you know, updating me on what was going on in the community since I wasn't living there. I was going, uh, I was away um, going to school. One time we went up into the mountains and it was a hot day. You pick, you pick berries in the summer time, blackberries. And we couldn't find berries for nothing. I mean, we were, her younger daughter, who was, I think, 14 at the time, was with us in the back seat, and she was complaining, I was complaining, and my aunt just kept driving. She just kept driving. And um, finally, we stopped at this place, and we got out, and we started looking around, and we realized we found this really nice patch, this real nice nutshoe. That's what we call it in our language, which means berry patch. And so we were sitting there and just enjoying it. My aunt walked further down into the patch. I sat right by the road where the, the berries were, and her daughter was there, and we were picking. And the next thing, probably 10 minutes later, and we were just enjoying. I mean, it was a really good berry patch. 10 minutes later, she comes running. She's running past us. We're like, what the heck's going on? She says, bees, they're bees. She must have, as she was walking, picking berries, walked right into a beehive. And those bees were flying. And she's running to the truck. And of course, she runs by us. So the bees go by us. So we're getting stung. So we jump up and we're running to the vehicle. And we jump in the vehicle, close the doors. And my aunt starts driving. I thought, oh my God, what a day. This is crazy. It's dusty. It's dirty. It's hot. Now we have these bees. And she starts driving up the mountain. And I look at her and I'm like, what? Aren't we going home? You still want to pick berries? And she doesn't even look at me. She keeps driving. She says, shut up. We're bonding. <laughs> And I just, I sat there and looked at her and turned away and just started laughing. Because to her, she didn't care. We were together. We were there sharing these moments. And now that she's gone, they're precious. They're precious moments to me because if she didn't make us do that, we wouldn't have had those memories. We wouldn't have had those stories. Thank you so much for being on the show. I really appreciate it. I hope everyone checks out the symposium in May. All information can be found on the link, which will be attached to the description of this episode. This has been another episode of Home Plates. Thank you so much for listening. The Seattle Seahawks have the best offensive line in NFL history. Kyle Seeger is the better Seeger brother. Markel Fultz is the best player on the Sixers. Hashtag trust the process. Okay, we don't actually believe any of these things, but if you want to hear our thoughts on topics like these, tune into the Boxing Podcast with Chris Ankiko, Alec Dietz, and Andy Amashta every Friday on the Soundbite Network. For more like this and other great shows covering sports, science, relationships, and the arts, Visit the Soundbites website, uwpodcast.com. That's uwpodcast.com.